Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Listener. As I'm sure you know, a lot of us are dealing with inflation right now. And I'll be honest with you, it's directly affected our Patreon. Our Patreon is the way that we support the show. It's the way I continue to release episodes to you, month after month, year after year. Now listen, I'm not asking you to put yourself in financial jeopardy, but if you have an extra buck or two kicking around and you'd like to support the show, even a dollar matters. Now, if you don't like Patreon, we also have a Black Label premium subscription that you can access through iTunes. Any support is appreciated, and with the holidays coming up, it's extra appreciated. Now, I won't waste any more of your time. Let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire.
The most dangerous person of all is one with a twisted inner mind who blends into society without being noticed. Quietly watching and planning, considering their options while participating in normal family life, as if all is well. These are the people who pose the most threat. They are the ones who rear up, violent and sudden, with no warning and no precursor. Defense against these attacks is almost always futile. What is left behind is a facade of innocence, banking on previous good character and unimposing life to protect them. All this to cover their hideous actions. Wives are taken and they are destroyed. And the perpetrator walks on, unaffected, uncaring, and entirely self-serving. These are the people whom we should fear the most. In January 2022, 23-year-old Chandler Halderson went on trial accused of the most brutal of all murders. His parents, Bart and Krista, had been callously killed. Their bodies were dismembered and their remains dumped in different locations around the state of Wisconsin. Chandler was the quiet, unassuming young man in the background that offered no threat to anyone. He appeared to fit in just like the rest of us. His explanations of his parents' whereabouts were taken at face value. No one had reason to question him or to fear him, but the ability lurking deep within him to carry out these acts against his own parents and then cover them up in this way is unthinkable. Two lives were snatched away in July 2021, and two people who had never hurt a soul had their dignity stripped from them. The details of this case are harrowing and deeply disturbing. At the center is a young man who had devastated lives with his senseless actions. A young man who possesses a character that is loathsome and dangerous. Listener, the tragic case of the Haldersons is one you will never be able to forget. Like I said in the beginning, a lot of cases end with the murder. This one, it's just a small piece of the puzzle. None of the things that happen after and none of the things happened before make any sense without knowing the murder happened on a specific day at a specific time. But the evidence in this case you'll find is overwhelming. Chandler Halderson killed his parents on July 1st, 2021. He cut up their bodies with axes and saws and knives. And he didn't even give them the dignity of having a funeral or even a final resting place in one piece or together. Their remains were scattered across Dane County, in public land, on farms, in garbage cans, in rivers, and perhaps every ditch is a possibility in this county. I promise you, I'm not trying to pull on anyone's heartstrings. I'm not trying to make this overly emotional. You might feel emotional. I suspect many of you have never seen anything like what you're going to see in the next couple of weeks. What happened here shouldn't happen, but it did. And so in a couple weeks when I stand up here and Miss Raymond stands up here, I'm going to ask you to deliver a verdict of guilty to finally bring some much-needed truth to Chandler Halderson. Thank you. Chandler Halderson walked into his local police department in Dane County, Wisconsin, and reported his parents missing. He told the deputy they had traveled to their cabin in White Lake a few hours north for their 4th of July weekend and hadn't returned. It was a story that didn't sit well with the detectives from the moment they heard it. 
By the end of the following day, the dismembered torso of 50-year-old Bart Halderson had been found with witnesses putting Chandler in the exact same spot a few days earlier. Chandler found himself under arrest for providing false information, a charge which was quickly accompanied by a much more serious one. A week later, in the tragic news that some of 53-year-old Krista's remains had been located in a stream near the small town of Roxbury. Chandler's charges were doubled. He now faced two counts of first-degree intentional homicide, dismemberment, and hiding of the bodies. To the disbelief of everyone around the Howlersons, grief for the death of two much-loved people was now compounded with horror at their own son being accused of their terrible murders. Chandler Halderson was emerging as not who everyone thought he was. With his arrest, Chandler's life was now rapidly unraveling. With it, a tangled web of lies that he had been telling so easily for years were spilling out at a rate he could not control. These lies were the foundation of the case, and for the state prosecution, they were the motives for it all. Slowly and carefully, they had traced Chandler's movements all the way back to July 1st, 2021. Witness statements, CCTV footage, and Chandler's own account of his movements enabled an almost minute-by-minute reconstruction of what really happened inside the family home. And the truth was inconceivably horrific. What really happened? On Tuesday... January 4, 2021, at the Dane County Circuit Court, the trial of Chandler Halderson started. With the tail end of COVID still lurking, masked attorneys sat facing Judge John Highland as the opening proceedings moved forward. Chandler sat in the far corner at the end of the defense table. He wore a pale blue medical mask covering most of his face. It stood out against his dark hair, black suit, black tie, and a baby pink shirt. Only his eyes were visible as he focused on the judge. As Dane County Deputy District Attorney William Brown began to lay out the state's case, he told a deeply disturbing story of the ultimate betrayal. Chandler Halderson was a habitual liar. Instead of working hard to achieve things in life, he simply fabricated tales of his fantasy roles. He told everyone he had jobs that he didn't have, partook in activities he had never tried. There was very little about Chandler that was true. This mesh of entangled mistruths, exaggerations, and outright lies meant telling more lies to cover up the ones that came first. To Bart and Krista, their son was kind and helpful and had never been in any trouble. He was a good kid now, growing up into a young man. They had no reason not to believe what he told them, but the extent of Chandler's lies and the lengths he would go to cover them up were beyond anything they could imagine. So the job lies are over for Chandler and his life. American Family Insurance, don't worry about that because he got this new job at SpaceX. And SpaceX, I can't go because I'm hurt. It was a perfect scenario. But there was one last lie that Chandler had to get out of. And that is he had told everyone he was going to MATC for college and that he was about to graduate. And you'll hear there's a hint of truth to that he was going there at one point. In fact, there's a hint of truth to all of these lies. He did go to MATC for like a semester. He failed out. But he wasn't going there anymore. And the parents were starting to grow suspicious. 
And we knew this because when we searched the house, we started to find notes on Bart Halderson's desk. Bart Halderson was one of these guys who prints his emails. I don't know if any of you print your emails, uh, but some people, they get an email and they print it out. That was Bart. And we find one. It's an email between Bart and Krista detailing a conversation that he had had with Chandler's advisors at MATC. Supposed to meet with someone else, so we met with this guy, Daniel Spieth. Chandler's gonna get a solar certificate. He wasn't. He's registered for fall classes. He wasn't. He's in the IT program. He wasn't. All of these things, line by line, none of them true. But Bart Halderson talked to this person. So police honed in on something. That line. When I talk to the advisor, he sounds just like Chaz on the phone. And he gives this number. That is, of course, because Bart Halderson, when he talked to Chandler's college advisor, was just talking to Chandler, who had bought a burner phone, you know, cheap phone from like Walgreens that you can buy with no service carrier. And police know that because they searched Chandler's bedroom. And in his desk drawer, they found that phone. On June 31st, Bart called Madison College directly and pretended to be Chandler. He didn't understand why Chandler had not yet received his degree transcript and certificate for his solar course qualifications. He was frustrated and wanted to meet face-to-face and get everything resolved. That phone call was with Madison College Administrator Omar Job. Now, if you've earned a certificate, say, in that solar program, you said, where does that get requested to? If you earned a certificate? Yeah. I don't, I don't see that you earned a certificate. Uh, you were taking IT classes, right? I don't see that you were in a program. But prior to the IT, there was a solar program, too. Yeah, but I don't see that you were Chandler... And your date of birth is March 15th? 98. Okay. How far back does that account go that you're looking at? Like when was the first class taken? 18. Spring of 2018. Oh, okay. So that does have all the history then. But I don't see that you were admitted in any program. You said they were, you know, the IT degree is in there, right? No, those are just classes. Uh, you might have just took the classes, but not be in the program. Uh, you have the solar. You took a solar class. Yep, you took solar classes, but you were not. You were not in the program. Mm-hmm. Did the internship from the spring show up in there? From the spring of what year? I can go back. Oh, this year, 2021. No. Does normally show up in there? Yes. If you if the if internship is part of the curriculum, yes. Do you know? Do you have a, uh, an Alyssa Brandt that works in uh, that area or anywhere in the campus? Uh, what is the last name? B R A N. I think it's T or DT. No. Uh, all the brands. There's no Alyssa. 
And is that check non-teachers and everything? It, it would be anybody on campus? Or it will be anybody on campus. The directory will have anybody on campus. How about, does Daniel Spice still work there? Spice. His last name is Spice. Yeah, it's um, no, S-P-E-I-T-H. No, it's not so no. Okay, that should do it then. Okay, thank you for your help. Right, you're welcome. In the last few minutes of that call, the slow realization for Bart that his son had been lying to him began to settle on the surface. There were no programs or qualifications. Chandler actually owed the college money. The people Bart had spoken with previously didn't exist. They were created by Chandler, fictional characters to play their part in aiding his cover-up. Chandler became each character as and when needed, posing as them online, sending emails from Gmail accounts he had created in their names, all a ruse so he could protect his secrets for a little longer. It was a staggering step to take in covering up his lies. The night Bart sent a text message to Chandler, it simply read, I spoke to Omar Job." Five words that shook the foundations of Chandler's make-believe world. His carefully stacked house of cards was all about to fall unceremoniously to the ground. His father was uncovering the truth. It's not known what conversations happened inside the Howlerson house that night, whether Bart confronted Chandler or if he told his wife Krista what he had discovered. Bart's work diary contained one crucial part of this terrible story. It would come to feature predominantly in this trial. A meeting between Madison College officials, Bart, and Chandler was scheduled for 3 p.m. on Thursday, July 1st. It was a meeting that would never take place. The murders. As Krista left the house for her job at 7.27 a.m. on that Thursday morning, Chandler was upstairs in his bedroom texting his girlfriend, His mood was low. He told Kat so many of his plans were all now falling apart. Kat had been told the same lies as his family, including being injured from a fall downstairs the week before his parents disappeared. He had lost his job at SpaceX, he told her, because his injuries meant he couldn't fly. She too would undoubtedly start finding out he wasn't a college student, question everything else he had told her. Chandler was getting desperate. By mid-afternoon, his texts had switched to a more cheerful tone and to what he thought his parents were doing at that weekend. He said he had overheard them talking about going to a cabin for the 4th of July with some friends. In those five hours, Chandler had progressed from despair and risen into desperation. He was being exposed and would have to face his lies. A plan formed that would right his sinking ship. It was a plan that can only be described as fully and wholeheartedly evil. Hidden inside the Halderson home, in a woodpile of the kitchen, was an SKS rifle and over 400 rounds of ammunition. A month earlier, Chandler had received a visit from a friend he had been playing online video games with for months. Andrew Smith was ex-army and a gun enthusiast. At the start of June that year, he had decided to come to meet Chandler face-to-face and wanted to give him a gift. 
He had no idea what his online friend would go on to do with it. So I purchased it initially because I really thought, so like, oh, well, I like it in the video game. I might like it in real life. And then I fired it. It sat in my safe. And then I never touched it again. And then it just dawned on me, like, well, I'm going to give it to someone who might actually appreciate this weapon and take care of it and all that. So I end up giving it to Chandler as a gift. Okay. So while you like guns, you didn't particularly love this gun? No, sir. Okay. When you gave the gun to Chandler, did he pay you for it? No, sir. Um, it was a gift? Yes, sir. Um, did you document in any way transferring that gun to him? Yes, sir. How did you choose? Did you fill out paperwork like this? I took his uh, photo ID that the state issued him, and I took it right next to the serial number, annotating that this was me giving this weapon to this individual, so that way, if anything like this would occur, that it wouldn't necessarily come back to me. Okay. It was important to you to document that? Most times it is, yes. Okay. So I had brought him a steel canister that had contained roughly 480 rounds of 762 by 39 steel case tool ammo. And is that the ammunition that goes with that weapon? Yes, sir. Okay. And showing you what's been marked, this is exhibit 395. What did you do with, what did Chandler do with the gun? Were you able to figure out where he put it in the house? Yeah, he had initially, so if you would walk down the fly stairs in the basement, you would look left, there was like a little wood pile, and he had stuck it in the middle section there because it was... I understood that they might not be happy about having this firearm, so. but he had told me he was going to be moving soon to, to do a career in SpaceX in Florida, so he was just going to take it with him and move out there with it. Okay. Were there any magazines that came with the gun? Yes, sir. Three. At 1 p.m., Bart sent his final text message to his son. It read, I'm ready when you are. Neither Bart nor Chandler would attend that meeting at Madison College. The intervening actions that Chandler took were extreme and brutal to ensure that they didn't. In the moments that Bart sent this message, the state prosecution believed Chandler put his plan into action. He retrieved the rifle from the woodpile and ensured it was loaded and ready to fire. Chandler then lured his father into the basement of the home with its gray concrete floor, brick walls, and neatly lined shelves and boxes. It would be the location of Bart's final breaths. A spent shell casing was found in the corner of that basement along with a bullet fragment. DNA testing confirmed the brown staining visible on the bullet was the blood of Bart Halderson. This was the bullet that had been fired at his abdomen, from behind, and traveled straight through his torso. Bart had two gunshot wounds with a possible third. Once that first shot was fired, there was no going back. One shot had been a contact shot. Chandler had placed the muzzle of the rifle directly and firmly onto Bart's skin before pulling the trigger. Luminol testing on the concrete floor gave a positive result. A sea of bright blue snapped on as the ultraviolet light slowly moved across the floor in the darkness. The blue stains were unavailable to the naked eye, but were clear evidence that large volumes of blood had spilled onto the floor blood that belonged to Bart Howlerson. Before she left work for that day, Krista received a text message from Chandler. It said he had to do an extra hour of work and asked her to pick up some juice on her way home. Chandler was stalling for time. In the same text, he said Bart's cell was out of battery and to text his cell phone instead. A cover, the prosecution said, to prevent Krista's suspicion being raised at there was something wrong at the home that afternoon. Chandler needed Krista to come home as usual without any extra defenses. 
She had no idea she would be walking into her death at the hands of her own son. The security camera mounted outside the Halderson home showed Krista arriving at 5.12 p.m., exactly one minute after Chandler had made a note to himself on his iPhone, a list of items and chores he had to do that he was thinking about while waiting for Krista. Calm, calculated, almost lighthearted, the list read, Weekend Chores H2O2 Lemon Door Handles Move Your Shit Upstairs Get a Job Clean Floor Krista, like her husband, was never seen leaving their home again. As the hours ticked by on the Halderson home security camera footage, there would be no images of anyone but Chandler leaving the property. Krista's blood was found in the basement alongside Bart's. The Fire Chandler now set about covering up his ghastly crime. After FaceTiming Kat and chatting with her normally, he went to a local quick trip store, purchased two large bags of ice. Chandler, it seemed, then stayed up most of the night. From the early hours of Friday morning, mites came on and off across the Halderson home. A security camera from a neighbor's house recorded hour by hour the windows lighting up and then going dark. One window, later identified as the window next to the fireplace, was especially bright. Flickering in the darkness, the intensity of the light would build and brighten, and then soften and become duller. It was a light caused by the continuous fire Chandler was stoking and encouraging inside the fireplace. A fire where he was trying to burn his parents' remains. He goes to gas stations. He's carrying out large bags of ice. Because what Chandler had done that night is what you all probably suspect by now. He had dismembered his parents, or at least started the process, and had to fit them inside of freezers that were in the Halderson home. And you'll see some of these freezers, they're cleaned. There's still some evidence around. That night, what appears to have happened, what the evidence will show, is Mr. Halderson took items from around the house and began cutting apart his parents. Saw blades covered in Bart and Krista's blood. An axe, Bart and Krista's blood. Handsaws, things of that sort, covered in Bart and Krista's blood. He cleaned the house as best he could, and you'll hear about that. But still, blood spatter found of Bart and Krista's blood around the house. And he had a plan. It wasn't a well-thought-out plan, but he had one. And that was he was going to burn the remains in the family fireplace there in the house. So it's July 1st, and if any of you remember, 4th of July weekend's pretty hot this year. People in the neighborhood thought it was a little bit weird that so much fireplace was going on, they smelled stuff. One person, this neighborhood's full of retired cops, but one retired cop said, I smelled like a barbecue, like a, smell like a pig roast. And he said that just not knowing what it was at the time, talking to the police. The evidence in this case will show that what happened was the fire had gotten out of control, burning these human remains. Human fat was rendering out. It was igniting. So Chandler threw water on it. But when you throw water on your residential fireplace, you break the glass. And that's exactly what happened. Just above that broken glass panel, which is clearly shattered, you see the paint kind of bubbled off from the heat. This is in the search of the home some week later. 
fireplace is clearly used. Police notice something interesting about this photograph, which is, despite being clearly used, the fire, the logs, are rebuilt. Someone had cleaned out all the ashes and rebuilt it. Clean logs, newspaper, one burnt piece in the middle. But what stuck out to police right away was that little rock right there. They thought, what is that? So they pulled it off and they put it on one of these fancy police deals. And the forensic anthropologist took one look at it. And she said, oh, this is a human skull. He had burned his parents' heads in that fireplace. Later, the police would go through the ash trap of that fireplace and they would find human remains, facial bones, the knee bones, which because we found Krista's legs by deduction had to be barred, all in the ash trap of that fireplace. Chandler stayed up all night that night of the first. Obviously things weren't going well, burning his parents' remains, so the next day, perhaps not having slept, he walked into Fleet Farm at 7.21 a.m. to buy a tarp. He's on video. He knew his girlfriend was spending the night that night, so he spent the whole day cleaning, but he's sending her text messages, which you will see throughout the day, asking her to bring him hydrogen peroxide and a mop, because he still needed to clean up. The small cut Chandler had to his toe had come from trying to clear up the shattered glass from the fireplace after it exploded out and onto the floor. He had told detectives the fireplace had been broken while playing ball with the dogs, an easy excuse to explain the physical evidence they were looking at. If the fireplace had never been examined more closely, maybe that story would have held. But investigators did examine the fireplace and will likely be forever haunted by what they uncovered there. Chandler's girlfriend of almost two years, Kat Melender, had no idea what her boyfriend had done. She had finished work for the day, picked up the cleaning supplies Chandler had asked for, and headed over to the Halderson home. She stayed over that night. They slept on a makeshift bed from two sofas pushed together. Chandler was still suffering from his fall, he told her. Wanted to avoid using the stairs. In reality, he didn't want her going anywhere in the house while he was asleep. There was a big TV in that room, just off the kitchen, where they could watch movies. Behind them was a dining table. Behind that, a fireplace. Built into the exposed stone wall. It was the same fireplace Chandler had spent the previous night burning his parents' dismembered body. The two large bags of ice he had purchased from Quick Trip, he had used for a hideous purpose. Finally realizing he couldn't burn his parents' bodies fully in the family fireplace, he placed their remains inside a large chest freezer in the basement. The ice packed around the dismembered limbs to prevent them from starting to decompose and release odors that might alert their presence. Kat stayed over that night, thinking Chandler's parents had gone away to the cabin. There was no reason for her to think anything different. Chandler's behavior was normal. The following morning, she left for work with Chandler, saying he was going to stay home, catch up on chores. Kat and Chandler used to message a lot. They would text and use Snapchat. That morning, Kat checked in on Chandler, and she noticed on the location tracker they both had that he wasn't at home. He was out in a rural area near Roxbury. 
Kath thought this was strange and took a screenshot of the map and his location to ask him about it later. She didn't know then that her screenshot would become vital evidence in a court case a year later. The area Chandler was in was the spot where Krista Halderson's dismembered legs were found almost two weeks later. As investigators dug deeper, there was more evidence that Chandler knew this area well. A photograph was taken of Chandler joking around by an old tree when he had been there with friends. As he is holding onto a high branch wearing just a pair of blue shorts, his feet stable against the tree trunk to keep in position, the background is what was of interest to the police. The backdrop to the photo, the area just behind that same tree, was exactly where the partial remains of Krista were found. Chandler's older brother, Mitchell, gave evidence during the trial. He testified to a loving family home and supportive upbringing. Bart and Krista were attentive and loving parents who would do anything for their sons and anyone who needed help or support. Mitchell testified that his parents did have a life insurance policy. It was a policy he believed was worth around $1 million. It was a piece of information the jury took note of. The basement of the Halderson home held more secrets and more evidence against Chandler. Inside a shoe, tucked away on a shelf, investigators found a small rectangular-shaped object wrapped in tinfoil. As they peeled away the layers of silver foil, they found a cell phone, Krista's cell phone. Checking through her messages revealed the message Chandler said he received from her on Sunday, July 4th, to say she had arrived at the cabin. It was a message she could not have sent. Checking data from cell phone towers nearby confirmed that Krista's cell phone had never left the area of the Halderson home in Oak Spring Circle. Chandler had used the phone to send the message to himself that Sunday to claim his mom was alive and safe at the cabin. In his haste to cover his tracks, he forgot one detail. In that text, he said they were going to attend the July 4th parade that day in White Lake, an annual parade that happens every year. But July 4th, 2021, fell on a Sunday. Posters for the White Lake parade confirmed the parade had taken place on Saturday 3rd instead, a detail that Chandler had overlooked. As that parade took place, Krista Halderson had already been murdered inside of her own home. Wave after wave of evidence came crashing down from the prosecution. Witness after witness, the detailed timeline, the forensic evidence from inside the house, there was nowhere for his defense to go. The defense strategy relied on the state not having enough evidence to prove Chandler's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They pointed to the actual murderers being a blank spot in the timeline and detail that the state had. No one actually knew what happened in the moments when Bart and Krista lost their lives, and it was this they were hoping would introduce a seed of doubt into the minds of the jury. Assumption is the mother of all mistakes. The story that you just heard assumes that Chandler Halderson killed his parents. You cannot assume anything. Look for what's missing. Look for alternate explanations. Because the second thing I want to tell you is that evidence of one thing is not necessarily evidence of another thing. 
So you have to avoid jumping to conclusions and really dig deep and look at what this all means. You're going to notice that many of the facts, many of the witnesses, aren't going to be hotly contested by the defense in this case. And that goes back to what I was just saying. 12, 18, 100 reasonable people can look at a certain situation and form a different conclusion. And when you're talking about a system where you need to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, um, you better make very sure that you're excluding all of the other things um, that these facts could mean. Because you just aren't going to know what happened. You're going to know some about the before. You're going to know some about the after. But you're not going to know what happened in the Halderson's home. Who did it? What happened? How it went down? Whether it was intentional or not, which is an element of homicide. You're just not going to know. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. The Farm The discovery of Bart's torso on the farm owned by Kat's family had sparked a detailed search of the area. Investigators and forensic teams spent months combing the land and processing evidence. It would be the site of multiple pieces of evidence critical to the case, and all could be traced back to Chandler. Near Bart's remains was a large black garbage can on its side with a blood-stained tarp inside. The blood belonged to Bart. The tarp matched a tarp Chandler was on security tape buying at 7 a.m. on the Friday morning. Bright yellow duct tape stuck on the tarp was forensically matched to the roll found inside the Halderson garage. The garbage can also most likely came from the Halderson home with a matching lid found in the garage. 
It was how Chandler had transported his father's body to the farm. When he first arrived unannounced at the farm on Monday, July 6th, he had stood talking with the Cress outside. He then went out to the back porch where they talked more before he took his car up towards the pool. In the grassy tree-lined area, the torso would be found. All the while his father's torso sat in the back of the car, Chandler chatted about his future with Cat, his supposed injuries, and the job at SpaceX being pulled. He knew why he was really there. He knew what was in his car. Cress had noted Chandler seemed down that day, believing his story, that he had received bad news from the doctor. Chandler played his part glowingly, giving nothing away. His acting skills, his ability to lie, so easy, so convincing. It had been practiced, perfected. Just before the long grass starts leading into the tree line, there was a pile of scrap metal. It was junk that Cress intended to get rid of, and there was a metal oil drum lying on its side in the middle of the pile, old and rusted. One area of the site had been cut out, leaving an opening. Inside, investigators made discoveries that they weren't expecting. So deputies begin to search this property. It's a vast property, maybe about 45 acres. Um, A lot of it's prairie, a lot of it's woods. But they find this oil drum that has this weird cutout. And so they look in there, and they find tools. And those tools then are tested by the Wisconsin State Crime Lab. The all-way handsaw has human blood identified as Bart and Krista. The broken saw blade has blood, it's Bart's. The scissors has blood, Bart and Krista's. And again, look at those numbers, a thousand times the world's population. There's also some pruning shears. Again, tested positive for human blood, Bart and Krista. Some of these tools were then sent to Dr. Figaro Soto, and she did a detailed analysis. But here's the basics of what I understood and what her reports say, is that this always saw has a certain number of teeth per inch. This broken handsaw has a certain number of teeth per inch. She can look microscopically at the wounds and tell us what tools are consistent with the markings that she saw. On Bart Halderson, his fourth cervical vertebrae is consistent with the broken handsaw. That's the tool that Chandler used to cut off his dad's head. It would be months before law enforcement had finished up with the farm and could hand it back to Cress. When she finally got her land back, she started working in the large shed that sat by the pool to sort through the buildup of contents inside. By now it was around mid-October, three months after the murders, As she was moving wood and recycling, collecting bits together and deciding what she would keep or throw away, she spotted the barrel of a gun leaning up against the side of the shed. It had been covered from view by sheets of wood. Cress contacted the police, who arrived and photographed the weapon before removing it for testing. This was the weapon used to shoot and kill Bart Halderson, and most likely Krista Halderson. It was also the weapon that Andrew Smith gifted to Chandler the month before the murders. The prosecution had established motive, means of opportunity for the murders, and dismemberment of Bart and Krista. All avenues pointed directly to Chandler. There was no other suspect in the frame 
Once all the searches had been exhausted, the Halderson family had held a private family burial for Bart and Krista at Roselawn Memorial Park in Monona, in Wisconsin. A chance to say goodbye to two people who were deeply loved and missed. The way their bodies were treated after their deaths by their killer prevented the family from being able to bury all of them together. Another horrific blow to the family, utterly devastated by what happened. After the prosecution rested their case, the defense called no witnesses to testify for Chandler. No witness to refute the prosecution's version of events or provide any alternatives, any explanations. The jury deliberated for less than three hours, and just like that, Chandler Halderson was found guilty on all charges. As the verdicts were read one by one, he stood motionless, no reaction visible. He knew he was going to prison for life, the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder in Wisconsin. He was now a convicted felon at 23 years old, convicted of being responsible for taking the lives of his parents while their backs were turned, cutting up their bodies, disposing of them without any respect any dignity. His life would now be dominated by a prison cell, cold, bare. The comforts of the loving home his parents had provided for him, a distant memory. It would be the judge's decision as sentencing if Chandler would ever get the chance for parole. Chandler filed a notion with Judge Hyland requesting not to be present at his sentencing hearing. He didn't want to come back into the courtroom and sit through the sentencing. This request was denied. He had been convicted and now had to face his sentencing. He could not simply not attend. Deputy District Attorney William Brown gave an impassioned statement on the state's feelings about Chandler ever being let out of prison. Mr. Halderson, by all accounts, chose to commit the crime of first-degree intentional homicide twice on a single day because he was caught lying about where he was working and going to school, or perhaps just where he was going to school. It was uncomfortable, probably, that he was caught. It probably wasn't an experience he was looking forward to in dealing with the repercussions of that. Life is full of inconveniences. Life is full of being uncomfortable. The difference between everyone else in this room and Mr. Halderson is all of us have owned up to that. But when faced with, in the grand scheme of things, a minor inconvenience in his life, Mr. Halderson chose to commit the crime of first-degree intentional homicide two times and then over the course of several days chose to cut up those people's bodies and spread them around the state. Chose to lie to the police, concoct a bizarre story, lead his family down this road of, of believing that there was just some hope somewhere out there that Bart and Krista were alive. Because he got caught in a minor inconvenience. I don't know how you protect the public from someone like that. It's even more compounded and perhaps aggravated in the, in the legal sense by the fact that no one saw this coming. Part of the risk of Chandler is he doesn't look like a dangerous guy. He's packaged up into like a normal middle-class kid and was able to fool everyone. Not only fool everyone about these crazy lies about work and school and activities, but fool everyone into believing that he was a safe person to be around, that he was trustworthy, that he wasn't going to, and not exaggerating the fact, shoot you in the back 
because that's in fact what happened. No one who's interacted with Mr. Halderson will ever be the same. For whatever reason he decided to do it, whatever justification he can come up with in his own mind, whether it be today or down the road in many years, nothing will ever explain it. His actions in, in July of this year were evil. And for this generation and at this time, Mr. Halderson is the personification of evil in our community. He can work the rest of his life at trying to earn back the respect and trust and love of maybe some of his family, and I hope he does that. But that's a different thing than what's going on here today. Our question is whether Mr. Halderson should ever be released from prison, and if so, when should he have that opportunity to ask? It's my position that he should never be released from prison. Two victim impact statements were read out to the court by the assistant prosecutor, one from Chandler's brother's fiance, who told of her grief for her future in-laws and the love she had for Bart and Krista. She also told of her fear of Chandler, of what he might do if he were ever released. This was someone she had spent some time with and grown to be fond of as her fiance's younger brother to discover what he had done, not only killing Bart and Krista, but the mutilation, the disregard for their lives and their remains, showed a callous and brutal human being hiding behind that innocent-looking mask. The second impact statement was from Bart's mom, Chandler's grandmother. Only written on the morning of the sentencing came from compassionate woman who wanted Chandler to have the chance of life again outside of prison one day. She asked the judge to give her grandson the opportunity for parole. Chandler himself did not speak at his sentencing hearing. When he was offered the chance, he chose to read carefully from a piece of paper he held in front of him. He did not take the stand during the trial. Other than tape-recorded messages and police interviews, no one had heard from Chandler himself. When he was allowed to address the court and the judge, his choice of words came as little surprise. And I would only ask that you read slowly, simply because my court reporter has to take down what you're saying, and, the, and sometimes we read faster than we mean to. Your Honor, I want to take this opportunity to state my intent to appeal my convictions. If there are any lawyers listening and willing to take on my appeal, take a moment to please reach out to me. It's not that I do not have feelings. It's that I was warned to not show them due to the scrutiny of this case. Thank you. Thank you. In his only opportunity to formally speak as his fate was decided, he chose to plea for a defense attorney to take his appeal. There were no words for his family. No explanation, no apology, no attempt to lay on record his remorse. His words were for himself, no mention for his parents. The sentencing comments from Judge Hyland were considered and meaningful. This was a case that deeply affected everyone involved. Everyone in this room has a mother and a father. Everyone has siblings, if they're fortunate, and everyone can understand the loss that the Halderson family extended as it is, and their friends and this community feel for their loss. It is tragic. It is tragic. It is something which will take decades for some to heal. I hope not that long, but healing may never come for, for some. One does not know. But I do want you to know that this court honors your loss, honors the people who died, 
and approaches this sentencing here, weighing that gravity of that offense as one of those things which must be weighed in determining whether or not Mr. Halderson should ever be eligible for parole. The gravity of the offense is as serious as it could be, and I must not overlook, of course, the steps taken to hide the crime. The steps taken which, if one ponders it, uh, certainly makes the crime even worse. If you could say that the murder of your parents is something that could be made worse. I've tried, even though I've had to examine carefully the evidence, not to think about it. I've tried not to think about how or what steps were taken or how these things even took place. I don't wish to engage in that speculation at sentencing, but I recognize that the jury found Mr. Halderson guilty of mutilating both bodies, hiding both bodies, and presenting a story to law enforcement to try and lead them on a completely different path than what had actually occurred. And that he took steps in those actions which really robbed those people of dignity. It is to Barton Christa's credit the foundation Mr. Halderson enjoyed. And it does not explain what happened here. I cannot conceive of a way to fulfill my duty to protect the public that I serve were I to perceive that at some point in time an individual who committed these crimes should be released back into that public. I cannot grant to Mr. Halderson the generosity of spirit and empathy that his grandmother has for him. Empathy which his own parents would surely have had where he just owned up to what he had deceived them about. I cannot say to the community here in this room or at large in this county that Mr. Halderson should have the ability to be reviewed and considered for release back into our community at any point despite his young age at this point in his life. I have to, for this sentence, ensure that the only time Mr. Halderson comes back into the community is to have the privilege of a burial that he denied his parents. Chandler Halderson is one of the most dangerous kinds of criminals. Violent sociopaths who blend in with those around them, showing no red flags, no signs of what they are capable of. These are individuals who can successfully hide the threat they pose to those around them. And it is a threat. Chandler was just 23 years old when he carried out the acts he did against his parents. Parents who did nothing but love and support him. For a human being to be able to carry out these abhorrent acts lies beyond comprehension. The Alderson family and those connected with Chandler have been betrayed, disgusted, horrified by someone they thought they knew. His brother and girlfriend have to find a way to live. With what happened, find a way to be able to trust those around them in the future. Chandler Halderson is exactly where he should be. Rotting, behind bars, 
at Dodge Correctional Institution. He has filed a notice that he intends to appeal his convictions. With the evidence against him, his appeals are unlikely to be successful. And I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening. Keep the fire burning. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.